Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 11 Wizards of the Coast. Wizards of the Coast was founded by Peter Atkinson in 1990 outside of Seattle, Washington. Atkinson named the company for a guild of wizards in a D&D game he was playing in at the time. At its creation, Wizards was releasing previously created games. Talislanta was one of these. Created by Stephen Michael Secchi and originally published by Bard Games, Talislanta is a fantasy game with magic, much like Dungeons & Dragons. Many of its features are similar to D&D, with the exception of things such as the task resolution table, which had five possible results on it, mishap, failure, partial success, full success, or critical success. Wizards got the license in 1992, and Sechi collaborated with Jonathan Tweet to create the third edition rules. Seven supplements for the game were published over two years before Wizards let the license go. Wizards was also publishing a game of their own creation in these early days. Called the Primal Order, or TPO, it was designed by Peter Atkinson. TPO was a religion-based fantasy role-playing game supplement designed to be integrated into other established role-playing game systems as part of what was called the CAP system. TPO was developed to cover high-powered gaming and the gods, with the idea being that game masters would develop individual gods of various power levels, create their pantheons, support networks, and things like that. The rules would also allow for increasing the power of the gods as the need arised. There were three more Cap System supplements. Pawns, the opening move, was released in 1992. Written by Nigel Findlay, it was a bestiary based on the TPO rules. Knights, Strategies in Motion, also written by Finley, detailed three fictional deities and building their religions on a TPO-based theme. That came out in 1993. Chessboards, The Planes of Possibility, came out in 1993 as well. Dave Howell was the writer, and he covered planar design and management as it pertained to TPO. Now, when TPO was released... Wizards included conversions with TPO for 18 different games, including AD&D, D&D, GURPS, and the Palladium Fantasy Role-Playing System. And you might be asking yourself, how'd they get away with it? Well, the answer is, they didn't. Kevin Simbita, who owned Palladium Books, sued Wizards for copyright infringement. I'll get a little more into that in a minute, but when the dust settled... Wizards had to release a revised TPO that excluded Palladium. Atkinson also removed AD&D, D&D, and Warp World from the list, but added six more systems, including World of Darkness. The cap system took off fairly well, legal challenges notwithstanding. Six more supplements were planned, but eventually scrapped for reasons I'll explain in a minute. The 1995 revised edition was the last official support TPO got. However, some folks have, on their own, converted the system for other systems over the years. Now, I need to back up a couple of years to discuss the game that put Wizards of the Coast on the map. In 1991, Richard Garfield came to Wizards with the idea for a new board game called Robo Rally. It would have players as robot control computers operating inside a dangerous widget factory. 
At the time, Ackeson turned Garfield down, arguing that the game would be too expensive for Wizards to produce. Instead, Ackeson asked Garfield if he could invent a game that was quick-playing and portable. Garfield accepted that challenge. The game he created was originally named Mana Clash. You know it as Magic the Gathering. When Ackeson and Garfield agreed to sell the game, Wizards was in the middle of their legal issues with Palladium. So, Ackeson set up a new corporation, Garfield Games, to develop the concept for the game and prep it for publication. Garfield Games then licensed production and sale rights to Wizards. All of this was to provide the game legal cover during the lawsuit. Once Wizards and Palladium settled out of court, Garfield Games was dissolved and Wizards got all the rights to Magic the Gathering. Ackeson decided for a big debut for Magic, bringing it out at the Origins Game Fair in Dallas in 1993. Magic was so popular by Gen Con of that year that it sold out all 2.5 million cards Wizards had. By the way, that amount was supposed to last the entire year, and Gen Con is in August. Magic's success was so big that it changed the company itself. Wizards of the Coast had initially been a few employees working out of the basement of Ackeson's house. By 1995, Wizards had a new headquarters in Renton, Washington, and 250 employees. Magic won both the Mensa Top 5 Mind Games Award and the Origins Award for Best Fantasy or Science Fiction Board Game of 1993 and Best Graphic Presentation of a Board Game of 1993 in 1994. In 1994, Wizard started working with the Beanstalk Group to license the Magic brand. The Beanstalk Group, for the uninitiated, is a brand licensing agency. Oh, and Robo Rally? You remember, the game Adkisson rejected? It got published in 1994 and won the 1994 Origins Award for Best Fantasy or Science Fiction Board Game and Best Graphic Presentation of a Board Game. Wizards began to expand later that year, buying Slay Industries from Nightfall Games and Ars Magica from White Wolf. Now, we discussed Ars Magica in the previous show. But for a brief recap, it's a role-playing game set in Mythic Europe, which is a historically grounded version of Europe around 1200 AD. Wizards utilized Jonathan Tweet's expertise to work up a fourth edition, while simultaneously publishing a supplement for the new edition and two supplements for the previous edition. Ironically, Wizards never actually published the fourth edition they'd created. Instead, they sold the rights to Atlas Games and swore they were out of the role-playing game business forever. Atlas Games, by the way, did release that fourth edition. Slay Industries was also a role-playing game. Developed in Glasgow, Scotland, it was set in a dystopian future where the majority of the known and unknown universe is either owned or controlled by the corporation Slay Industries. It incorporates the themes of Gothic, Cyberpunk, Dystopia, and Splatterpunk. Wizards published it through 1994 before giving up that license as well. In 1995, Richard Garfield struck again. His card game, The Great Dal Moody, was released by Wizards and won the 1995 Mensa Best New Mind Game Award. By the way, I own a copy of Dal Moody, 
absolutely a blast to play when you've got a group of people over and you're looking for something to do that isn't the traditional board game. In August of 1995, Wizards released Everway, designed by Jonathan Tweet and a literal cast of dozens. It was Wizards' last role-playing game for just a little while. We covered Everway in a previous episode, so I won't expand on it here. However, I will note that the sales of Everway were low enough to discourage Wizards from wanting to be in the role-playing game business anymore. So despite annual sales of $65 million U.S. in 1995, Wizards of the Coast decided they were getting out of role-playing games in December of that year. And at that time, as I've said multiple times, they swore they would never return. So after the break... We're going to look at what brought them back. After discontinuing their role-playing games, Wizards concentrated on their card games for the next two years. On August 2nd, 1997, Wizards of the Coast was granted a U.S. patent on collectible card games, number 5,662,332. Examining the patent, it appears that Wizards was patenting the concept of a collectible card game as well as the layout for a collectible card game card, though I may be wrong in my assessment. The patent is available to view online, so check it out for yourself and see. A few months prior to this, on April 10, 1997, Wizards announced the purchase of TSR and Five Rings Publishing Group for $25 million. This purchase brought Wizards back into the role-playing game market, though admittedly at the top of the game since they just acquired the top-selling role-playing game in the market, Dungeons & Dragons. However, in a rather unusual move, Wizards allowed all D&D materials published between the purchase of TSR and 2000 to carry the TSR logo. In fact, Wizards held on to the TSR trademark until allowing it to expire in 2004. Between 1997 and 1999, Wizards began to spin off campaign settings. Planescape, Black Sun, and Spelljammer took the hit, as Wizards chose to focus on the settings that it believed were the moneymakers, like Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk. In the summer of 1997, Wizards decided to begin the process of producing a third edition of Dungeons & Dragons. As we discussed in the D&D episode, the 2000 release was welcomed by gamers of all kind and brought with it the open game license, which, for better or worse, is still with us today. 3rd Edition won multiple Origins Awards in 2000, as detailed in the D&D episode, and it later spawned a 3.5 edition, which I questioned the naming of in that same episode. Okay, let's go back a couple of years to August of 1998. That's when Wizards acquired the rights to the Pokemon trading card game. Wizards began publishing it in January of 1999, selling nearly 400,000 copies in less than six weeks, which was ten times better than Wizards' own projections had been. So, by January of 1999, Wizards of the Coast was publishing the number one selling role-playing game, as well as the top two collectible card games in the world. Life was certainly looking good for them at this point. Oh, and to take a minute to go back, I need to explain what Wizards got out of acquiring Five Rings Publishing. 
Five Rings Publishing was created in 1996 when Alderac Entertainment Group and Isomedia decided to part ways. Five Rings was created to continue publishing The Legend of the Five Rings collectible card game. It also had a Deadlands card game, a Star Trek collectible dice game, and several other card and dice games on the boards when it was purchased by Wizards. Wizards got the lot and published all of them, folding Five Rings Publishing into their own departments, then dissolving the actual company. All right, let's get back to 1999. The success of Pokemon led to some sports cards being discontinued because those printers were all printing Pokemon cards. Pokemon also won the 1999 National Parenting Center Seal of Approval. By 2000, Wizards had sold millions of copies of Pokemon and released a new set with an instructional CD-ROM. Wizards published Pokemon until 2003, but a Nintendo affiliate began publishing Pokemon before it was supposed to, because Wizards still had an agreement that hadn't expired. So, Wizards sued, and Nintendo settled to avoid issues. With that settlement in December of 2003, Wizards was officially out of the Pokemon business. Next, something else happened in 1999 that changed Wizards. In September, Hasbro purchased Wizards of the Coast for $325 million U.S. I need to stop for a second to point something out. In April of 1997, Wizards purchased TSR and Five Rings for $25 million. About two and a half years later, Wizards as a whole was purchased for $325 million. This tells us a lot about the business at the time. First off, how valuable collectible card games were, as Wizards was publishing both Magic and Pokemon at the time. Second, it tells us what Wizards was doing to rehab D&D, as 3rd edition would come out early the next year. Third, and final, it tells us how well diversified Wizards was, as it hadn't made the same mistakes that TSR and other companies had made in the past. Later in 1999, Avalon Hill was made a division of Wizards. They'd been purchased by Hasbro in the summer of 1998. We discussed Avalon Hill a couple of weeks ago, so you can find that episode in the archives if you want to know more about them. In November of 1999, Wizards announced Gen Con would be leaving Milwaukee after the 2002 convention. It would land in Indianapolis, where it still resides today. Also in November of 1999, it was announced that Vince Calori would be the new president of Wizards. Okay, so I know I'm doing a lot of info dump and reorganizing at this point. I want to apologize, but I do know that there's a lot of you that just love the minutia, the info dump. So I'm giving as much of it to you as I can in one big chunk. And I promise for those of you who don't like it, I'm almost done. On January 1st, 2001, Peter Ackeson resigned from Wizards. However, he did get to take the Primal Order with him as part of the deal with Hasbro when they originally purchased Wizards. Atkinson later purchased Gen Con from Wizards. That was in May of 2002. Around that same time, Wizards outsourced their magazines to Paizo Publishing, giving them the license to publish Dungeon, Dragon, Polyhedron, and Amazing Stories. And Chuck Hubner became president and CEO of Wizards in July of 2002. In 2003, Wizards got back into the miniatures game, 
releasing their Dungeons & Dragons line of pre-painted minis. In 2004, they added a Star Wars line to the minis. Also in 2004, Lauren Greenwood succeeded Chuck Hubner in his positions. Around that same time, Avalon Hill was put back under the Wizards umbrella as it had been pulled out a few years before. Still with me? Greg Leeds succeeded Greenwood in March of 2008. Okay, that's enough of the info dub. Let's just get back into doing some history. In 1999, Wizards decided to get into the retail gaming store business. They bought The Gamekeeper, which was a chain of stores, and expanded them. Changing the store name to Wizards of the Coast, they operated until the spring of 2004. So, in 2003, Wizards employed about 850 people, and the company picked up a number of awards across their various games. I've already named most of them either in this podcast or in the one about Dungeons & Dragons, so I'm not going to repeat those right now. In early 2006, Wizards filed a lawsuit against Darren Rudder, who was the administrator of the MTG Salvation website. They accused Rudder of posting the prototypes of upcoming Magic cards to the forums for MTG Salvation, and those prototypes were confidential. He did this a full 10 months before they were due to be released. According to reports, that suit was settled out of court. In September of 2007, the licensing agreement with Paizo Publishing to handle the magazine publishing for Wizards expired. Wizards took back the product and took the magazines online, ceasing print copies. On June 6, 2008, Wizards dropped the fourth edition of Dungeons & Dragons. As I explained in the episode on D&D, the idea was to streamline the game, lessening the prep time needed to play it, and, in theory, make it easier to bring new players into the game. For more on this, the D&D episode is available in the archives. Throughout the aughts, Wizards kept cranking out new editions of Magic the Gathering, which makes sense as it continued to be the top seller for the company. In 2009, Magic 2010 was announced. It was the first core set since the beta set many years earlier to feature new cards. On April 6, 2009, Wizards suspended all PDF format sales of their D&D products on non-Wizard sites, such as DriveThroughRPG.com. This came about due to a lawsuit brought against eight people in an attempt to prevent future copyright infringements of their books. This was also during a time that copyright infringement was being cracked down on harder than it previously had been online in an attempt to better protect the works of people in multiple fields, not just gaming. In early 2012, it was reported that the sales of D&D had slumped. In fact, the numbers proved this out. As we discussed in last week's episode, Paizo Publishing's Pathfinder had supplanted D&D as the number one game in the field and would continue to do so for nearly two more years. Wizards responded by announcing the playtest for what would ultimately become D&D 5th Edition. The playtest began in 2012, with 5th Edition being released on July 15, 2014. Shortly thereafter, D&D reclaimed its spot as the number one selling role-playing game, which it still holds. And, for you numbers fans, in 2014, just shy of 127,000 units of the D&D starter set were sold. In 2018, they sold almost 307,000 units. To this day, you won't convince me 
It wasn't because 5th edition was better than 4th. I know there are those who love 4th edition and swear by it, but I like 5th a whole lot better. Personal opinion. In 2014, 20th Century Fox got the rights to Magic the Gathering in order to turn it into a movie series. However, by the time Fox was acquired by Disney, that first film hadn't been made, and there's still no word on whether those movies will ever come to life. Also in 2014, Wizards filed a lawsuit against Cryptozoic Entertainment and Hex Entertainment, alleging that their online card game, Hex Shards of Fate, was a clone of magic. All three settled out of court in 2015. By 2015, it was estimated that 20 million people around the world played Magic the Gathering. The game has tournaments, a professional league, and weekly organized game programs all over the world. Also in 2015, Wizards Products picked up Origins Award. D&D's Player's Handbook and Monster Manual, along with Magic the Gathering, grabbed three total awards. In 2016, Wizards partnered with One Bookshelf, to create the DMs Guild. Now, I've mentioned the DMs Guild before. It's an online community content program that allows creators to make and sell content that uses Wizards properties. This also allows Wizards to sell older editions of D&D, along with their various supplements, in either PDF or print-on-demand form. 2016 saw yet another change at the helm of Wizards, as Chris Cox replaced Greg Leeds. In 2017, the Seattle Times reported that D&D had, quote, the most number of players in its history, end quote. Bloomberg reported that the sales of 5th edition were, quote, up 41% from the year before and up another 52% in 2018, end quote. That same article noted that in 2017, 9 million people watched other players play D&D on Twitch. Continuing over the years, both D&D and Magic continue to see expansive growth, and Wizards continues to bank on their success. In June of 2019, it was reported that Netflix had tapped Anthony and Joe Russo to create an animated series based on Magic the Gathering. By the way, if Anthony and Joe Russo sound familiar, those are the guys behind, oh, Avengers Infinity War, Avengers Endgame. Uh, Captain America Civil War. Yeah, guys with a little bankability. Also, we know that at present, production on a new Dungeons & Dragons movie is ongoing, with talent like Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez involved. And no, the Russos are not involved with that one. However, we'll see how either of the projects we just talked about happens to turn out. 2020 was a year of change for Wizards of the Coast. First off, the pandemic that shut the world down impacted Wizards as well. With no in-person events, Wizards was unable to present their upcoming products as they normally would have. However, since they'd had the foresight to build up D&D Beyond, as well as their YouTube channel, they followed the lead of other industries and turned to online events to continue to promote their product, as well as have the opportunity to have a number of celebrity-filled virtual game tables for charity events. In fact, the pandemic proved to be a boon for sales for Wizards. In January of 2021, it was reported that revenue was up 35% over 2019, with virtual play rising 86% during the pandemic. Credit for this was also given to Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds, which are popular online platforms for gamers. We're going to discuss those in a future episode. 
However, for the success Wizards had had during the pandemic, their image took several shots during the year as well. After the murder of George Floyd in 2020, Wizards released a statement to social media in support of their black fans, employees, and community. However, this statement was immediately attacked as an act of gross tokenism, due primarily to various reports that came out about the treatment of African-American employees and contractors. Wizards later banned seven cards depicting racist images from tournament-sanctioned play for Magic the Gathering, as well as removing them from their official card index site. The cards are Invoke, Prejudice, Cleanse, Stone-Throwing Devils, Prodish Gypsies, Jihad, Imprison, and Crusade. Shortly after this, the D&D development team announced they would be making changes to the product line that had been called out by fans for being insensitive. I mentioned the drow in last week's episode, but this wasn't the only example. Through every announcement made, either Wizards or the D&D team continued to note that they believe in equality and that somehow these old descriptions and feelings had been allowed to remain in their games. In July of 2020, Wizards added disclaimers to some of the legacy products that can be purchased digitally, such as Oriental Adventures. This was done to note that the feelings and attitudes prevalent when these games were originally released were insensitive and acknowledging their incorrectness now. For the most part, fans of the product have taken these changes in a positive way. However, some fans have rejected the changes, claiming, as I've noted before, that there was nothing wrong with the games in the way they were written and there's no need to change them now. Further backlash came from Orion D. Black, who had been contracted by Wizards for a time. He wrote a statement describing a workplace that made some people feel tokenized and neglected. He also stated his belief that Wizards was encouraging people to seek out other games to play because of all the conversations Wizards was having concerning those who felt marginalized. Other writers put it more succinctly, calling a lot of what Wizards was doing lip service. Only time will tell what the end of this particular chapter will be. Another entry in the It Never Rains But Pours category. In October of 2020, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, the award-winning writers and creators of Dragonlance, filed a suit against Wizards for breaching a licensing deal with them for a new trilogy of Dragonlance novels. They reported they'd already written one of the books and had a second on the way when Wizards pulled the plug. The original deal was for a trilogy for the writers to cap off their series and give the fans, of which there are many, a proper send-off. However, in December of 2020, Weiss and Hickman voluntarily dismissed their suit without prejudice leaving many to believe that some sort of agreement was worked out with Wizards to publish the novels. However, both Weiss and Hickman have stated that Wizards hadn't formally answered the suit. So again, we'll have to wait and see. In February 2021, Hasbro announced a reorganization of the company. Three divisions were formed, Consumer Products, Entertainment, and Wizards and Digital. Wizards and Digital encompasses all of the assets of Wizards of the Coast and will continue the focus that Wizards has had all along. Expand on the existing games, create new games, and oversee digital licensing, not only for Wizards, but for Hasbro as a whole. 
The Wall Street Journal reported that while Hasbro's net revenue fell 8% in 2020, Wizards posted revenue of $816 million U.S., which would put them up 24% over the previous year. So, with a successful collectible card game, the number one selling role-playing game in the world, and the backing of the largest toy and game company in the world, the future certainly looks bright for Wizards of the Coast. We're just going to have to wait and see with what's next. However, what's next for us is the end of this week's tour. Next week, we'll do our first deep dive into one of the big names of role-playing games by examining the life of one E. Gary Gygax. You might think you know the man, but I bet we'll uncover some things you didn't know. As we bring this week's show to a close, I wanted to take a second to explain why we're now dividing the show in half every week. We started this process last week, and we'll continue to do so for the foreseeable future. The reason is simple. Advertising. In the podcast world, advertisers find what's doing a mid-roll more appealing than a pre- or post-episode spot. So by splitting the episode roughly in half and allowing for a mid-roll spot, I have the opportunity to find sponsors willing to pay more for advertising. That money, in turn, allows me to make improvements to the podcast itself. So, while I know it might be annoying to have those internal breaks, I can assure you that in the long run, It's going to be well worth it. As always, I owe all the thanks in the world to you for your continued support of the show. Just knowing you're listening every week makes it worth all the work I do to make it happen. So, thank you. You can follow us on Facebook at Roleplaying History Podcast. Shout us out on Twitter at Roleplaying History Podcast. Or use the hashtag Roleplaying History Podcast. We're up and running on YouTube. Our channel is Roleplaying History Podcast. Hit the subscribe button and click on the bell to get notified when new stuff drops. And for those who prefer an old-fashioned email, God, like email's old-fashioned. I love it. Anyway, you can hit us up at roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. So next week, we learn everything I can dig up about E. Gary Gygax. It's going to be an interesting ride, so make sure you don't miss it. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.